Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. You know, at the end of the day, um, we've got stewardship over more than $8 billion, and that money exists to create social impact. So if we're not concentrating on this stuff, you know, can we deliver the 5 7% per annum? Great. Yeah, we can. But, you know, if it doesn't do anything, what's the point? Like I, I'd, I'd just work in the investment side of the business. So that's not why I'm there and that's not why anyone in our team is there. Those were the wise words of Shamal Das, Head of Philanthropic Services at JB Weir. A short bit of housekeeping and we'll get right back to Shamal. Firstly, my gratitude, as always, goes out to our listeners who have opted to actively support the podcast by becoming Patreon supporters. We're now number 17 and are getting closer every week to achieving our sustainability target of 30 supporters. So thank you to our Patreon supporter family, including Rich, Tanvir, Lucia, Judy, Jules, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. Our Patreon family are pivotal in helping me to shape the direction of the podcast through their advice, ideas, referrals, ongoing feedback, and general support. If you want to join our Patreon community and support the growth of Humans of Purpose, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humansofpurpose. As mentioned earlier, today I'm talking to Shamal Das, Head of Philanthropic Services at JB Weir. I've seen Shamal speak a few times in the past since entering the strategy and social impact space and found his style of communication refreshing, evocative, and really pragmatic. So it was a treat to catch him while he was down in in town in Melbourne to sit down and talk about some of the big picture systems challenges and opportunities and to touch on a range of other topics too. So this is a a deep but also rangy conversation that should hit all those uh, good niche topics, but also um, hard topics that we face uh, as funders and fundees in a ever complex system. So I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did and always do. Shamal, so good to have you here. Thanks for coming down, mate. Oh, pleasure to be here. It's uh, two coffees in. Are we good to go? Uh, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> now, it's not middle of the night. Is it, so. <laughs> it's a sort of average mid-morning consumption for you. Mm. So first meeting, though. Um, yeah, so great to have you. I mean, you know, I heard a lot about you and your work from various players in the in the philanthropic and community space. I'd love to hear a bit about your journey into the space and uh, take me down a bit of a road as to as to uh, what got you here today. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, um, I guess, start at the beginning, right? So, um, but it is part of the journey so I'm not being facetious um, I was actually born in um, Fiji um, in the 70s and then uh, my parents had to migrate in the uh, mid 80s when uh, there was a coup uh, Colonel Rambuco and all that and and that's when we came to Australia so I guess um, that had a lasting impact because at a very young age I you know actually have seen soldiers and guns on the street so it's it's uh, even though I had a very idyllic raising um Unfortunately, not everyone in Fiji lives on a resort. Um, you know, we lived in normal life. Um, it's not how we imagined Fiji no, to be. No, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> but um, getting here, it's sort of those things only in hindsight, you think, just sort of sit in your head over a while. Um, and then, you know, just seeing my parents coming in here as immigrants, and Australia was a very welcoming country back then, but, you know, sort of starting back at the bottom, doing jobs like you know, working at Pizza Hut for, you know, very highly qualified people, um, you know, driving taxis. Um, and so you see what people do and, you know, the socioeconomic differences and 
um, never really wanting for people, but, you know, quite lower middle class, if you will. And then moving out far west to be able to afford property at the time. And so you come through there. My father then worked, which I think was really important for me, was during my high school years, he actually ran a diocese for St. Vincent de Paul. So obviously I did, had to do all the Vinnie's door knock appeals and all that and sort clothes um, just because that's, you know, that's where I went after school was actually do my dad's work and, and helped out. Uh, and that just sort of just becomes part of your DNA. And um, then seeing the impact of that work, it sort of, you carry it with you. And even though I went economics and finance, um, my first job uh, at Perpetual Trustees, the opportunity came to sort of start uh, working in the trust business when I started. So you start looking at giving out money, where does the money go? And then sort of things start happening in your head and you start asking these questions about, well, is it money being given properly? Where should it go? Where is it going? And um, this role is a very unique role. Everyone sort of wants my job, but... It's true. It's, it's, I've talked it to people. And yeah, I did and, a poll before the podcast. Yeah, well, look, <laughs> it's probably better than ScoMo's <laughs> job at the moment. Um, and, but the point is it's, um, it's a really odd career path that's quite broad to get here. Uh, and um, so it wasn't a planned role that I wanted from 10 years ago. It's just sort of doing certain jobs has rounded out um, parts of my work and then obviously the, a fair amount, uh, the other half is all luck. I was thinking this morning about how sometimes we return to our childhood or our youth a bit and our values as we get mm-hmm. a bit older mm-hmm. and my example is really quite um, frivolous. I was just thinking about how when I was really young I loved hats and I had a big hat collection and now I love hats as well, probably more so to, to cover the uh, the growing uh, baldness but uh, you know, you know, maybe with like my analogy here is like when you sort of develop something around social justice and you see social change as a young person Maybe you don't embark on that straight away, but it stays with you, and it's something yeah. that you can kind of tap into later. And, and research tells you that in, um, you know, it comes out in things like U.S. philanthropy and things. You know, those sort of things get ingrained at a very young age. You just kind of do it, hmm. and sometimes you forget why you're doing it, um, but you are doing it um, on the good and the bad side. But exactly right, it's sort of, um, you know, in some cases you'd say, "Wow, it's terrible your family went through that," hmm. but obviously the opportunity that came from making those decisions, and you receive the hard decisions people need to make. But they stick with you. And, and you know, until yeah. you're maybe in your mid-30s and you have your own kids, maybe yeah. you don't quite put all the puzzle pieces together, but it comes together at some point. Yeah, it's an interesting formula. And how much do you think of it comes down to what role your parents play? Because for me, both parents in the public sector, very strong influence on my values. Um, do you think mm. if your dad wasn't in that space, you would have been so inclined? Um, yeah, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to know the alternative, but it's, you know, that, that work and getting exposed to the nonprofit sector, which a lot of people aren't. But then when you realize that today, if you're dealing with a hospital, with childcare, with aged care, you know, you're dealing with the social sector every day. Mm. Most people just don't know it. Yeah. The social sector is um, everything and it's mm. such a big proportion of um, spending as well that I think it touches everyone. One thing I think, I mean, maybe before we get into some more systemic and uh, structural stuff to talk a little bit more about your role um, today at JB mm-hmm. and um, what you're doing there. Yeah. Well, so um, the... I guess the title of the team is sometimes a little misleading. It's, it's where it began, Philanthropic Services uh, at, at JB Weir. Um, and, and it was originally created to look after our clients. Um, you know, uh, JB Weir uh, is 180 years old this year, actually. So, um, But looking after wealthy families and wealthy corporates, and, and uh, that's the core business. But more recently, in um, it's actually the, the uh, you know, the, I guess, prudent stewardship of them, funds and the assets of the non-profits that has become a core part of the business so across australia and new zealand now we look after more than eight billion dollars for for organizations driven by 
a deeper purpose. Um, you know, well-known charities all the way through to um, corporate foundations and membership organisations, et cetera, hospitals, uh, schools. And so our work is actually primarily comes down to three pieces of work. We do um, research. We do a lot of research, um, unique research into giving in Australia, um, in the shape of giving. So, you know, and, and that's all shared very openly. We want everyone to gain from that knowledge. Uh, but for our clients, we do um, investment governance and in broader governance and leadership work um, and the executive education, uh, which is a lot of the Harvard and the governance courses that we've created. And then the third part is strategic advice, which is actually going in, sitting with boards, you know, understanding the issues of that organization and then providing specific advice on uh, perhaps what they need to do in their funding model, perhaps what they would need to do in their in their leadership structures, um, in board regeneration, perhaps that's the type of work we sort of get involved in daily. So even though philanthropic services sounds exciting, like we give money away, we do none of that. I assumed you just um, drove down major highways and threw cash out the windows at Knockaround. Well, it seems to be what people are telling the Red Cross to do is just <laughs> airdrop $100 million <laughs> over, in rural over Australia a, and then their job's done. Yeah, over, over a three-year period. Is, the know. most idiotic thing I've heard, the last uh, commentary over the last couple of weeks. It's, it really is getting to crisis point with the uh, – I think the bushfires have brought out some interesting phenomena in both um, hysteria, hysteria-driven giving at the time but also, what are the what are the um, bodies that are getting the funds doing, and what are their obligations as well around how to use those funds in a sort of timely manner, and you know, what are the transparency sort of requirements around that? Well, I was, I was telling, um, I was talking to um, a good friend of mine uh, actually yesterday about this, um, about all this money and all these channels being giving up, and and something I've been thinking about um, in the last week as well is, um, and something we might try to do with with our Harvard program in May is. Uh, you know, who who is, you know, in, in in some of the problems, I guess if we define the problems in the sector or even in social work, what we see is um, there, there are what we call white spaces. You know, the two problems are white spaces where there's no one. And the second problem is actually everyone's in place, but there's no connective tissue. No one's connected the dots. Um, the federal government doesn't connect the dots mm. and, the, you know, the federated model doesn't lend itself to connecting dots. No. But also, very large nonprofits don't connect the dots, even though that is probably naturally their space. Well, they're too big to connect the dots. No, they're not. But I think you know, there's you know, there's a lot of egos in the sector. Mm. Like you know, I'm very special at my thing. Mm. Um, you know, you can't do what I do, um, or oh, we've got all the money, so we'll go do what you do. It's like, well, even though you shouldn't be doing that, that's not your work. Mm. Um, it's it's the type of work we're doing in all 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 the you know all the other stuff we talk about um, in terms of leadership and governance is saying, well, understand your work and understand what's you know not so much what you do. But what needs doing because, you know, organizations are getting too stuck in themselves. Um, but the hysteria giving is quite interesting because, as, as I've said to people recently, is how many times are we going to react to crisis? Yep. Because the money should be going to avoiding crisis. Yep. You know, fires will happen mm. and it's going to be quite, you know, it's just part of the Australian landscape. Mm. It's just going to happen every five years, not every 25 years now. And we're there's just going to have to learn. There's been that sort of like uh, interesting confluence this time where usually it's an overseas natural disaster that makes people um, yeah. sc- sort of scurry around trying to give to a tsunami overseas here or there. But this time it's both proximate uh, local and uh, significant. Mm. And I think that's made people really go bonkers. Well, if you think about it though, it's, um, you know, it's you look at that crisis and you go, wow, you know, X amount of people dead, 
Okay. Hmm. And um, this many people have lost their homes, right? Hmm. Material product. And it's devastating, right? And these communities will take decades to recover. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for people who sit around this work, even the work you do on your board is you sit there and go, well, you know what? This, um, you know, what's, what's happening with impoverished children in our country? That's, that's a natural disaster. Yeah. We've created yeah. that. That's human made disaster. You know, what's happening in homelessness? That's a disaster. Yeah. You've, you've, you've created a great natural segue there. So talk a bit about the, your role as chair at the Constellation Project. Cause I think what I do like about your work and what I, as I sort of learn more about you, I like how you think in systems. That's mm-hmm. something that I learned in government is that nothing is kind of, uh, in a void, uh, everything has the potential to recognise that it's in its own system, much like mm-hmm. you know, a school of different fish in water. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just looking around and can you see the other actors um, and and sort of currents around that can help you create change. Maybe in the context of homelessness, maybe talk a bit about the constellation yeah, project. Yeah, and, and so the constellation project is nearly like a natural. Um, I guess it's it's actually like a natural live experiment in systems thinking, hmm. um, and and I'll I'll um, call out you know I knew a little bit about systems, but after sort of uh, creating and co-teaching the course and listening to Christy Muir from CS CEO of CSI talk about systems a mm. lot, I'm getting close to understanding it. Mm. Um, but it's it's understanding the problem is really important, and this is what I find is is fundamentally the issue when you talk to boards, sometimes talk to CEOs, talk to government. Mm. It's like no one seems to have a full picture of what the actual problem is. Yeah. Um, and it's often because we're looking at it from our point of view. So when you look at the system, um, you know, a simple or a complicated or a complex problem, they, they require different solutions. Yep. So you must actually understand the nature of the problem first. Absolutely. Um, you know, some things are quite simple and you overcomplicate the delivery, um, which governments want to do. And... Um, it doesn't work um, because it's too much. Um, you know, in some of the indigenous community, maybe we're over-engineering it because mm. we're not asking them what they want. Mm. We're saying, oh, we'll design this amazing, perfect thing. Yeah. Um, in reverse, simple solutions to really complex problems are mm. really painful and really expensive and usually um, worsen the problem. Yeah. So understanding the problem is really important, but then what you realise is, it isn't a, you know, these social problems are very complex. And when you look at the world, you know, and, and this is the main thing we get boards to understand, the centre of the ecosystem is the beneficiary mm-hmm. and the outcomes mm-hmm. they need. Yep. And we're all part of their ecosystem. It's not our ecosystem. Yep. And if you see the world from their point of view, you're, you're one of a thousand dots in their system, governments, corporates, you know, the environment, transport, infrastructure, it's all there. So what role are you playing? Mm. And more importantly, what role needs to be played? So if there's a missing bit, um, then you never solve the problem. So understanding the problem says, well, okay, it's great we're doing this, but there's 20 other people, you know. So, And this goes into homelessness. What you end up seeing is we needed to solve for the whole entire problem. And at the Constellation Project, we're, not, we're, we're clear that we're not replicating any problems. So to understand the problem says, well, actually – you know, we're actually good at servicing homelessness mm-hmm. in Australia. We spend a lot of money servicing homelessness, but we're not solving homelessness. Yeah, or preventing it. So once you're homeless, we can deal with it. Yeah, we're, but we really don't know about you until you're homeless. And then yeah, we're, and just, we're treated system, differently. Well, the system is, you know, I've literally heard organisations that I've worked with say, you know, you, I know you're on the cusp of homelessness, mm-hmm. but when you're homeless, mm-hmm. call us. Yeah. We're funded for that. Oh, my God. We're not funded to help you not get homeless. Yeah. Yep. So we'll, we'll help you out once it's you're homeless. You know, you, once you and your kids are in the car without a house, yep. 
Call us. That's, but that's part of sort of like that, that uh, consequence of um, sort of looking at symptoms versus cause or also looking at something when it's final stages of, yeah. um, of severity versus uh, we, we can sense here are the key things that come before a, a terrible cycle of well, disadvantage. Well, we're really bad at prevention, mm. right? Because yep. it's like, well, how do, you, how do you value something that never happened? Yeah. You can't, you can't yeah. generate enough urgency around yeah. it. And, um, you know, even when you saw the collapse of, I think, the National Health Prevention Agency, that for mm. me was like the nadir of kind of that like lack of care for, um, you know, uh, actually getting ahead of problems. Like early intervention is still very big in the talk, but when we think about it, um, it's very, it's been, I think, really hard to sell prevention despite the economic uh, long-term benefits. Well, yeah, exactly right. So the economics of it make complete sense most of the time. Um, but it's, you know, it's really hard for often philanthropists to understand and others, and, and in certain places they understand. So in, in parts of like medical research and health, they understand this, mm. but they don't apply to actual social human services problems. Mm. Um, because the thing is, once someone is homeless and been through a relatively traumatic experience, you've created a problem that is more long lasting. And, you know, the out of home care area is a really interesting area. When you see that it, we have a system there that nearly creates homelessness, yeah. it, you know, it really drops you off a cliff. Yeah. So, you know, to someone who is already very disadvantaged and is clearly going to be suffering generally mental health issues, et cetera. So what we, you know, what we think about in the constellation is saying, well, if they you know, we're servicing homelessness well, even though what there are some dots, you know, there, the journey part is missing. So how yeah. do you, once you fall in or how do you get through a system and come out? So how do you get past crisis into another place? So, But the focus we started on was more homes because, you know, everyone we deal with is like, well, there's no point having a better journey if the journey goes nowhere. If yes. there is nowhere to yeah. go, yep. Yep. there is nowhere to go. Yep. There's, there's nowhere around that puzzle. Yep. <laughs> you can't you know, logic no your yeah. way out of that one yep. if there is no bricks and mortar home. This is a supply side problem. And, and so this is what we're doing. Is So we're starting there saying, and so this is about saying, well, how do you unleash private capital in this space to invest in what is long-term social infrastructure? And the timing's right. Interest rates are really low. Mm. You know, capital is looking for long-term stuff to invest in, a lot mm. of that super capital perhaps, and even philanthropists. Um, builders need to build. We have land in this country, mm. but it's about saying, well, what are the barriers? So levers and barriers are what systems are about. Mm. Once you understand the problem, you go, well, okay, A, B, and C are the barriers. Mm. Um, so how do we break those barriers? And, and that's your strategy becomes very focused. And you sort of talked before a bit about knowing the strengths and weaknesses and capabilities of the actors in that system yeah. to maybe tackle each of those levers or barriers. Exactly. So there's, you know, once you understand those barriers and you go, well, at the end of the day, you know, there are only certain things that nonprofits can do. Hmm. At scale, you know, you cannot build at scale with, you know, equ you know equity is going to come from investors. Yep. Debt's going to come from banks. There is no non-profit sitting around with a debt book that can run that balance sheet, right? And there is, yep. you know, In you, wildest dreams. you need NAB to ride, you know, out of their $2 billion um, commitment to affordable housing. You yep. need big chunks of capital. You need, and you need, you know, people with big chunks of land to be able to say, okay, you can build the 2000 apartments. Mm. Um, you know, whether it comes from non-profits who do, because their non-profits have significant amount of land in Australia, actually. So, or the government releasing their own land, you know, state governments and local governments zoning, saying, well, you're allowed to build this way in this area. Because um, then you start running into social, you know, the social issues of, yes, we want to help homelessness, but please don't build an apartment blanc in Taramara. Because, <laughs> you know, 
I don't want anything like that near my house. You know, we, we have to run into social issues yeah. where Australians, you know, and this is, goes into that, you know, that conversation we were having around, um, you know, one of the deep conversations we have with our clients and the sector more broadly is, you know, and you would have seen internationally the conversations flipping because what they're saying is it's great, you know, philanthropy is great, mm. but, you know, what is the actual sacrifice any of us are willing to make? Yeah. Paying your taxes isn't sacrifice. I don't know why some people think like paying the government taxes is a sacrifice. It's like it's, no, it's a, it's a no. civic duty. No. Um, and then the second part of the puzzle is, and then what? So you can give away $10 million, but if you're still flying around with a huge carbon footprint mm. and you still own seven houses, mm. and you, so if you're still part of the problem, yeah. do you understand you're part of the problem? Well, this is, this is, I think, why a lot of people are unhappy at the moment is because they pay pretty decent tax rates, but then they see the fragmented or kind of non-response to a national mm. crisis like we're having, yeah. and it's a lot of the heavy lifting is left to the not-for-profit sector mm. and uh, other you know philanthropy and um, donors as well to kind of – Bridge that gap, mm. and then you think about um, a whole range of the issues that are ha- that are happening, and then you think, well, that's just that's just not working well at all. Mm. And you start to think about um, government in terms of how it operates. But then another thing that came into my mind was about you know the, the power of um, values and ethics in philanthropy, and sort of mm-hmm. so what are the right choices, or what are the things that we choose to think are worth funding versus maybe not worth funding. Um, how how I mean that is like how it sort of seems that to me homelessness has become something that is definitely like a good thing to fund more recently mm. and people are interested, yeah. whereas maybe it was much more demonised, um, you know, a decade ago. And the same thing goes for um, perhaps another um, analogy is mental health. Mm. So mental health before was sort of seen as, oh, well, you know, um, probably you're not taking care of yourself. Or maybe oh, yeah, you know, obesity is a good kind of way. You've got, got to harden up. It's your yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So stop eating, um, you know, stop living in a – it's sort of like – so the way to look at it is like you're eating too many chocolate bars. Well, hold on. Maybe it's not – maybe it's more like you live in a food desert and you, you've raised in a very poor environment on um, food vouchers. So yeah. how do we think about um, – causes in terms of uh, their their inherent worth versus their appeal to funders. Yeah, that's I think the values and ethics bits there is interesting because, yeah. you know, we've done all the research and you see the data and you see where the money goes um, and you can see how things from, um, you know, very much um, what we'd call, you know, mum and dad giving mm. is very much crisis-driven, um, social-driven, mm. you know, um, often a lot more giving through religious entities, et cetera. And as you get sort of get higher up the wealth, it starts, you know, the the arts comes through and culture comes through, which is really important for any human society. And then you get education significantly come through, research comes through a mm. lot. So you can see where the values um, and and as you can see, as they're saying, well, you know, they're, they're trying to perhaps move to more, um, you know, in, in the prevention area or in the, you know, um, you know, giving people a you know leg, leg up, up, a leg yeah. out, and all yep. that stuff, and you know, but some you know sometimes it's you know sometimes it's ill advised as well. You mm. see some of these you know, um, you know, how many scholarships can you have? Um, <laughs> you know, so how many scholarships can you have for smart kids who are already going to make it yeah, anyway? Exactly. So yeah. and it's it's yeah. it's 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 important, but to a point, you go well. Where is the marginal dollar go? And mm. thinking about marginal dollars across causes is really hard because. Philanthropy fundamentally will come from your raising and your ethics in your heart. So mm. if you've seen certain things, mm. um, you know, that'll form your life. So, mm. if, you know, there are there are people who are, you know, I was just talking to a board director this morning on email and, you know, he's going to, 
you know, the Asian countries and in the Middle East around, you know, people who are stateless, right? Mm. So these people actually have nowhere. They, they don't belong anywhere. No country to call home. So you're thinking, well, why would you fund that over, you know, some kid in Western Sydney or, yep. or out here that needs an education? You go, mm. well, how do you even make that decision? Mm. Like, what is the framework for that? Mm. Because passion, so what, what I'd say is when you know, you know, and this is when we have um, families who start setting up foundations, mm. We don't talk about structures. We don't talk about organizations. Mm. Where we start is what is it that you want to change? Yeah. Like for whom is this money? So, and the thing is you can't, you know, pick 20 things and give away, you know, five grand to each of them mm. thinking mm. you're making a difference. Yeah. So if you really believe in fundamentally that edu- you know, education is for all, mm. then who's really missing out? So you can, you can give to your independent school, obviously, yep, and yep. have another scholarship, yep. or you can go and find disadvantaged schools and maybe give them asset or like get, build something that will live and support children for a long time. And how much of your role, because I, I think, you know, we had another guest on, who I think, you know, Will Beresford from Equity Trustees, mm. who talks in very similar terms about, um, you know, giving decisions for families and trusts being values-led, purpose-driven, outcomes-focused, which is such interesting language because mm. I, I really, I'm not sure how it was done before, but it seems like a smart way to start with what you want to change before you throw money yeah, around. Yeah, it's truly interesting. And I, and I think it's... Um, um, it, it's actually applying a discipline to giving that um, a lot of people find hard to, as, as I said, it's, um, you have to think about this stuff. And, yep. and you, know, I, you know, talking to people like Joe Taylor at mm. Ramsey and, and stuff, you know, they, they hold this, very, um, this responsibility very heavily mm. because you, get, you can easily spend $100 million in certain systems and waste your money completely yep. and... Um, you know, understanding systems is important, right? So if you look at um, Bill and Melinda Gates, right, hugely successful in global health, huge disaster in US education, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's because they misunderstood certain systems mm. lend themselves to certain co- uh, certain interventions. Mm. It's pleasing to know that Bill Gates makes mistakes. Though. Oh, and it was a big one. <laughs> it wasn't a small one. <laughs> but you know what? Philanthropists should make mistakes. Yeah. And they That's should, they the should talk about that as well. And I mean, they should tell everyone they should tell that everyone. was poor funding, yep. shouldn't have done that or should have done that differently. There's, there's a lot of um, interesting talk that pops up now and then about like a register of mistakes across uh, different <laughs> sectors. So if a sector is really... We, uh, we call those royal commissions in yeah. Australia. That's what, that's what we have. <laughs> and in, an enlightened philanthropy sector or not-for-profit sector one day might be like, uh, here's what we mm. tried to do. Here's the research that we commissioned on it and it showed that it doesn't work in this setting. And yeah. then instead of my small not-for-profit going to fund similar research that's mm. already been done where they haven't shared the findings, I can decide, okay, well, there's 80 grand I can put into something mm. more useful. And also, you know, not every, you know, not everyone has to be special. It's yep. like, you yep. know, you, someone's done the research, right? Mm. Go and read uh, the Giving Review at Equity. Go and read the work Ramsey's done. Look at what Potter puts on their mm. website. You know, if you want to fund something that has been well thought through, you know, if you want to invest money, you come to JB Weir and you go, well, those guys have done the research. I'll give them the money. Yeah. If the big philanthropists have done the work and it's in your sector and your area, get, don't reinvent back them. the wheel. Don't back reinvent them. the wheel. Go and ask them because they will tell you what they didn't fund that they think is valuable. They will actually tell you. So how much of, how much has it become your role then or how much time do you spend with your clients um, telling them about kind of the research on yeah. things and what's worth doing versus not doing? Yeah, and- look, it's it's interesting because what we're lucky in um, in our role is that we we have exposure to all sectors. So we, you know, 
we have links in with government. Um, we talk to philanthropists. That's core business. We guide and advise nonprofit boards. Um, so we understand their work and their impact models. And we are a corporate and we deal with corporates. And we have access to a lot of corporates through through National Australia Bank and, and their institutional bank. So we actually see our role in my team as um, as sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of like a systems connector. Um, if you can bring the people who are interested in solving, and this is where Constellation is actually a live experiment, is you can mm. build the people interested in, but also with an interest in, because sometimes you need a, someone who's got some commercial link to it, because yep. they're the only ones who are going to really do it well, because they might make money. I love the distinction you made there, interested in versus an interest in, so yeah. skin in the game versus actually. Yeah, it's actually... like well, saying, you know what, the thing is we can all talk about building houses, yeah. but only a builder can build a house, Correct. Yeah. not me. Yeah. You know, I can I can bang on about more homes. But you I'm you not can gonna, fund the building of a house. I, I cannot. <laughs> I'm still not sure I understand how cement works. Um, it's exciting to me, but I don't understand it. Um, so I'm not an engineer. So, But the thing is the right people mm. can get it done. Yeah. As long as you bring them together, and this is where PwC's work's been important in this, is is the space and the asset to allow them to work together and build a solution together. Because the problem that some of the some of the issues you see is, you know, government goes off and you know gets a thousand reports that say different things because the nonprofit sector all have different views on stuff. So you have to get in a room as a sector and sort your sort your shit out really, yep. understand it or understand what you're asking for first. Get the corporates on board because only then do you have a shared vision and a shared understanding of the problem. Only then will you make progress. Because mm. if you all think it's a different problem with a different solution, mm. you know, we, we, you're speaking different languages and resources are wasted. Yep. So I think you something you mentioned before made me think about your interesting perspective is that you deal across basically all entity types and sectors. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what that's taught you about the nature of kind of uh, problem solving or bringing the right actors together um, because it's rare that you get somebody with mm. insights from sort of across all different sectors. I find the um, – I was um – I was reflecting on this more recently as we think thinking about what we're doing yeah. this year and, and what the what the nature of the work is. Um, I, I think there's, there's two observations. There are so few people in this country. In, in Harvard, they have a term called a tri-sector athlete. At Harvard Business School, they try to t- create people across like the Social Enterprise Initiative and Kennedy School. People who understand the language of each sector are extremely valuable. Mm. Only they can bring people together, right? So when you have people who are only government, like lifetime government, mm. good at government. If you have people who are non-profit for life, good at non-profit. If you have commercial people, they're commer- and they, what, what happens is they do not actually understand how to function in the other space. Mm. Um, and this, this leads to the question is we, we, I'd love to see a lot more cross-pollination. And this isn't just, you know, people with great commercial lives who mm. are, you know, Dabbling inverted comments, <laughs> I'm giving back and sitting on three boards now, and I amazing. Um, it's 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 the other way. It's yep. non-profit people going into commercial boards, I think, will help commercial entities significantly, yep. especially people with executive experience. Mm. Um, and one of the issues we find in non-profit boards is very few non-profit board directors have any executive experience in the non-profit sector. So they truly fundamentally don't understand yes. how to work it's in the sector. Massive so problem. If you've been an accountant for 25 years, you understand nothing. About yeah. being an executive in the nonprofit sector, right? It's, yeah. It's, it's, and then you have to actually, so, you know, it's the other side of ego. Humility is often extremely lacking mm. in a lot of sectors. Mm. Um, and, and what I found is that's across the board because people need to bring that openness to it. Um, 
And so what I what I find is people more and more what the work we're concentrating on is, um, you know, and this is the the nature of the work, which you you know the the holding frame for a lot of this stuff is um, lifting our gaze. Everyone needs to lift their gaze above their organisation or their sector to say what's the problem. Yep. So you could sit there in the nonprofit sector, as, as some people do, and blame the corporates or blame government mm-hmm. for the problem, but they're part of the solution. So sitting there blaming them is going yeah. to get you how far. And it's and if you just look at um, if you and your partner are fighting about something, how, how well it goes if you just blame them, it doesn't tend to work well, out no, very not, well. Not, 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 <laughs> not <laughs> so, a great strategic so, manoeuvre. No, so maybe if you apply that same thinking to, you know, if, if you're blaming your funders and your partners rather than, um, you know, lifting the gaze a bit, that's quite a good... Yeah, and so that's that's the, I mean, and that's the paper we're we're currently working on. Is it called uh, "Lifting the Gaze"? Because yeah. that would be a great title. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So that's the, that's actually the frame for the for our our work across all of our leadership is because what we've what we've said to both, you know, and this applies as much actually. What we realise sort of in hindsight is because this started all before the Royal Commission, all this coursework and all the stuff we built. But it applies as much to corporates as it does to the non-profit board. Is your job. Um, you know, and it applies mostly to nonprofit boards because, in the absence of a mechanism like shareholders or banks who give you debt, the board is the only mechanism in the nonprofit sector to hold the organisation to account. Yep. If you don't do it, no one will. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is, you can be extremely successful funded organisation that grows. So if you're a homelessness services organization, and this is no, this is not an issue with them, or you're in a, you're a community housing provider, yeah. and you've grown for ten years, yet homelessness has gone up at seven percent per annum, is that success? Yeah, that's the question for yep. you as a board director. Not my look at my financials; they look solid. But the board, the board directors, I think, uh, lack the literacy to know what success is, but also to, I mean, the way I think about it a bit is if you have, if you took purely commercial director, uh, d- commercial executives oh, yeah. who are retired often or still working, that dabbling in not-for-profit boards, mm-hmm. getting them to make decisions based on papers and. Um, the actual operating yeah. environment that not-for-profit is kind of like when you watch a foreign film with subtitles versus knowing the language or learning the language. It's just a completely different experience. So you might be thinking that, oh, yeah, no, I get what's going on here. This is totally um, helpful input, but um, you need that balance of people who... It reminds me of, uh, so for, for many years with Harvard, we did work with Professor Warren McFarlane, who's mm. world-renowned, and, he, and it, it, when he ran a hospital foundation um, in Boston, he said the first, you know, he said, he said you know, this, the finance committee is the siren call to all like Harvard graduates, right? They're all geniuses <laughs> in finance, so they all want to go and be on the investment and finance committee. And the first thing he puts them on is the the quality committee and the complaints committees because if you're in a hospital, it's about people and yeah. people who die. Yep. So unless you understand that, the finances are irrelevant. Yep. So actually understand. So, you know, every organization we work with is a finance risk audit committee. Mm. Um, how many nonprofits do you know of that have an impact committee? Yeah. Or an outcome community. Uh, like, or isn't that the work? Close to none, I would say. That is the work. And, you know, interesting to see that the better operators, I think, in the not-for-profit space start to dedicate more space in their annual reporting and in their, their meetings mm. and publications to social impact rather than that economic impact, whereas that might yeah. be the last two pages in some yeah, it, good reports. And, and it should be because – and then, and, and you know, because the finances can tell you very little because you have two things, right? A, an organisation in our space, you have an impact model and a mm. funding model. Yeah. And you can have a very strong funding model with a very weak impact model 
and you can be vice versa. Yeah, and you can be totally deluded by one or the other. So if I show you an organization that is, as you say, it's growing by 10 or 15% mm. every year, but you know nothing about its social impact, you know, what, what are you, what does the typical person say to that? Well, that's, that's exactly right. So, you know, you can, and this has happened, right? And this has happened in the nonprofit mm. sector. If you, you know, if you have an organization that grows significantly, um, you know, one of the fundamental problems in the nonprofit sector, especially when government funds certain things, you know, let's call it out of home care, let's call it aged care right mm, now, mm. is quality at scale is the problem because mm. you will scale so quickly that you cannot maintain quality. And in certain sectors, when you don't maintain quality, people die. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, and that's actually as the board, you must carry that deeply. Yeah. Because that's why you're there. Yep. Not 10% per annum growth. You know, that that should be the thing that exercises your mind. Um, and if it's not, then you don't belong on a board. So how much time do you then spend educating the sector? Because um, that's that's become – and I mean, kudos to you for making that part of your work because, you know, no one said, um, you know, Shamal, JB, we, you know, should spend time um, doing the research or telling the sector maybe mm. what are the latest trends and mm. um, and what should we look at. But how much do you think your role is to sort of say, here are the things we should be paying attention to versus ignoring? Well, look, we, I mean, the thing is at the end, at the heart, JV, we manage money, right? Yeah. We're an investment house. So, and that's, and that's all good and well. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, we've got stewardship over more than $8 billion and that money exists to create social impact. So if we're not concentrating on this stuff, you know, can we deliver the five, 7% per annum? Great. Yeah, we can. But, you know, if it doesn't do anything, what's the point? Like mm. I, I just work in the investment side of the business. So that's mm. not why I'm there. And that's not why anyone in our team is there is because, you know, a country of this scale with such resources, these problems are eminently solvable mm. um, if we get our act together. And so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not me sitting in a whiteboard in a room thinking up these ideas and telling people what to do. You know, I sit on these boards, um, and it's from my own experience, but talking to board directors every day in my job, it, they, they say it in very different ways, but you can see their frustrations and where it comes from and where executive frustration comes from in terms of their board challenges. Uh, you know, that's led to the work because at the end of the day, if the board don't set those guide rails or set a vision that is achievable mm. um, and well-resourced, then you're never going to get there. So the board needs to take responsibility. So, you know, as you were saying, oh, yes, you know, you know, I'm not sure Moses came down with the, you know, noses in, fingers out, but I'm pretty sure it's not a, a biblical <laughs> verse that we have to follow. Um, nose, nose in, hands out. Yeah, yeah whatever yeah, it is. And yeah. the thing is, you know, and, and you know, the, um, you know, the AICD course will let you meet hmm. your regulatory obligations as a director. Yep. Will you actually achieve anything in the 10 years you are a director if yeah. you don't lift your gaze, yeah. if you don't think about impact, if you don't? I don't, I don't understand how people think they can turn up to four board meetings yeah. a year in something as insidious as domestic violence mm. or childhood health mm. and think they understand, you know, how much time do you spend understanding the work you do in your daily work? Yeah. You must apply that focus and rigor to understanding social problems, which are even more complex. Yeah. yeah in an organization that actually changes people's lives. So I don't, I don't understand why people think they can do this, this stuff on the side or pad out CVs yeah. or what, you know, if your fundamental reason isn't helping the beneficiary, then don't be there because mm. you, you know, you're not doing anyone a favor. And probably 
you're also adding a lot of dead weight in, in a lot of ways. And I think it's a hard thing Well, sometimes. you can stand in the way because if you bring risk aversion to it, it means your organisation won't take the risks necessary. Yeah. You yeah. can actually get in the way. And I think passive board directorship is something to avoid. And wherein, wherein you kind of posed the question around um, governance and sort of the, mm. the role of that, I think you also gave the answer in governance. Mm. Like, you know, one thing that you could see sort of see a bit more is, you know, why don't more boards have performance reviews each year that sort of evaluate? About themselves. Yeah. So how are they going? Yeah, um, the, how are the, they? The 25-year veteran board chair is usually a concern. Yeah, 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 exactly. And they're like, you know, how have you helped the organisation create – achieve its vision or purpose mm. and how have you helped contribute to social impact that year and you know generally um what, from what i see it's very much a pat on the back yeah we grew by 20 percent or something and that's sort of the end of it and, and it's it's, it's sort, of, sort of a bit sad that we're taught to believe that that's the conversation well it is it's actually i mean there's a there's a obviously oddly enough recently i was um listening to um I was reading uh, Sapiens actually recently, yep. and um, you know that's the thing is how how the human being has evolved into this place where they're constantly just growth, right? We, we've created, and, and you know, so I'm an econo- economist by training, so you know, the economics is about the allocation of efficient allocation of resources, right? But the thing is, it's a mechanism; it's not the end. So we're feeding a system that's actually just a mechanism. Yeah, it, it's not meant to just exist, right? It's not. It only exists in our minds. It's like, a fiction. Well, it is. Money is a fiction. Economics is a fiction. Yeah. We've created it. We can stop believing in it tomorrow. And in history, people have stopped believing in the value of things and it falls apart. Yeah. Like empires have yeah. fallen just because people stopped believing. When you read Sapiens, were you kind of thinking, uh, I was sort of thinking a little bit, well, what, what if, you know, it seems like um, government has been so disappointing in so many ways lately. Mm. What if we all just agreed soon that <laughs> it's no longer a thing, you know? Yeah, tribes. <laughs> yeah, back to yeah, tribes. Yeah, back to tribes. Well, no, it's like we've all tied ourselves up, right? We, we're all in the system yep. now. It's about saying, well, how must this, um, how must this system evolve? Mm. Because the thing is the system... It, we've just gone a bit past, you know, probably since the 70s with all that Friedman stuff. It's like, you know, the system is meant to serve us. Yeah. We decide the ends. Mm. Uh, at the moment, we serve the system and, you know, about five people decide why. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and we, we serve it for them because, you know, do we need more cereals? Do we need more some of this stuff? It's like we have enough choice. Choice oh, yeah. is not, you know, um, we've got to think about why you know we're producing some of the stuff we're producing and on Earthwatch, you know we talk about things like plastics in oceans it's like that's the outcome of yep. this system we are killing you know we're in the next wave of extinction where we're you know the first time we just got rid of all the stuff on earth and now we're getting rid of stuff in the water oh that i guess we're next basically it's very so, concerning do you do you kind of think much about some of the new emerging models that do take that kind of social and human capital into yeah, account yeah i think um and that's why if you see the nature of the work i end up doing on boards and we're trying to focus on in things like environment it's really important because the thing is unless you're counting all the and and econ- economists will tell you this right these are these are you know uh, sunk costs a very important part of the system who who makes the profit and who bears the cost is critical in understanding any industry right so you can you can manufacture what you want but if you kill the ocean that's not acceptable yep so that but who bears that cost mm. societies bears that cost at the moment the corporate doesn't um, or the government doesn't um, so the question is you know what are we willing to sacrifice for the world we want is a fundamental question. Whether you're a really wealthy person, whether you're a corporate, 
whether you're a government who needs to say, well, you know, we're going to have to transition from these industries to these industries. Um, you know, we probably don't have a visionary government right now in that front um, from the speech yesterday, but it's going to be around, you know, we need to make choices because mm. it, it is at some point you cannot have perpetual growth. You have to make decisions yeah. about what's important. Yep. And and that's a conversation we haven't had in this country for a pretty long time, I reckon. Yeah, and maybe it'll be a little bit while longer before we're prepared to have it. Do you like Finland's visionary government? What do you think of the four-day work week announcement? Oh, look, uh, you know, it's um, – um, I'm, I'm more in the uh, Bertrand Russell camp in the sense of, you know, in praise of idleness. I, I think we need a little more <laughs> idle time because yeah. everyone's busy, but I don't think anyone's actually that productive. They're having meetings. We're having a lot of meetings, <laughs> drinking a lot of coffee, so we're keeping some industries up. But the point is, you know, um, I was thinking – I'm talking at the um, Royal Botanic Garden soon, and I was thinking about, you know, you, you can do the nature stuff and all that. What's the value of a garden, for instance? Why would you give money to a garden? Um, but I was coming at it from the view of, you know, some of the greatest discoveries of all time have Made been really smart people just wandering around yep. and being inspired or seeing something or just – how much time do we spend thinking? Yeah. We don't think anymore, right? So one of my things I'm trying to commit to myself is you just got to slow down a little bit and think. Yeah. And you just... Cause How do you make space for that in your busy life? Extremely difficult, um, you know, with, with an 11 and an 8-year-old as mm. well. So so time is tough. And, and you know what? You have to kind of make do of the time. So you actually have to do... Yeah, it's it's actually a weird thing. I think, you're, I think we're being hardwired for guilt. Yep, for sure. For not doing stuff. So the thing is, you know what? I don't mind if I'm at a, you know, because you've got, you got to make the most of your travel, for instance. So I have rules around I hate working on planes. Yep. So I don't. Yep. So I will sit there and I will, you know, watch an episode of something or I will just stop. Yep. And just jot notes down from maybe the last couple of weeks and just let the things because you know, the thing is, I'm not going to do that at home with yeah. two kids. Um, so that's not going to happen there. So I just have to find the time in the day, um, you know, whether you work from home one day or mm-hmm. whether you're just somewhere where you're just going to go, I need to just think about this a bit longer um, or I need to talk to someone. So the important thing is actually a lot of my thoughts gestate, whether I'm talking to, to Christy or whether I'm talking to some other colleagues in the sector, is that's when the thoughts, you know, just – Find those smart people you yeah. like and talk to them because yeah. it'll naturally come out to them. Or my, my best friend is a commander in the Navy, so mm. I'll sit down with him and talk because things like leadership mm. and governance, they're, they're, they're cross-sectoral. It's not like a – it's not unique to me. Yeah. So I'll talk to him and, you know, he's, he's responsible for multiple ships yep. and lives every yeah. day. Yep. And uh, he's, a, he's an ex-clearance um, diver as well. So, you know, Getting other people, you know, so get out mm. of your echo chamber. Mm. Talk to people with significantly different experience from different places because they give you perspective like that. Yep. You know, you're not going to get, you know, and this is something I talk about with diversity on boards. You know, people mm. go, oh, look at that. And I say, you know what? If you give me 10, you know, 10 people in a room and you go, oh, wow, there's, you know, three white males, three white people, an Asian, a black person, and whatever, and then you just go, you know what? If they're all investment bankers, you have no diversity. <laughs> Great like, point. Because they're all Excellent bloody point. think the same. And I hope everyone uh, listens to the cogency of that point is that uh, <laughs> it's not always about how you look, it's your background. Yeah, uh, that matters. exactly. Yeah. Right. Where's the beneficiary? Yeah. You know, the thing is, if you're, 
if you're an organization that's all about human services, you know, where's the engineer? Yeah. Where's someone who just thinks completely different to all of you? And I think mental models. Where's mod- the no voice? Mental models play a big part in yeah. that as well. So what, what different me- mental models do you bring or problem-solving approaches mm-hmm. can you bring to really complex um, intersectoral and often intersectional problems? So like complex social issues uh, often require different layers and modes of thinking, and mm-hmm. I think that's really valuable to have those Yeah, because when you have specialists, right, they all mm-hmm. know. Yeah. The yeah. thing is if you – Put it, you know, ten vet surgeons mm. in a room. They all know their stuff. Yeah. So where's the other people? It's fascinating um, being married to a, a doctor, actually a cardiologist. She she just thinks um, in such black white diagno- diagnosis <laughs> kind of terms. Yeah. As you'd want in someone doing yeah, that job, yeah. you don't want 100%. someone wishy washy. Hundred <laughs> percent. But it's it's. I love bringing her into my world of um, grey, where everything is wishy washy yeah. and trade offs and economics. But you know what and- they do if. The thing with them is if um, from people with that sort of background, if they don't understand, they ask good questions. Yeah, they do. Why isn't it? Yeah. So they make you question yeah. why you think you know something. Oh, yeah. And then you know, engineers ask great yeah. questions because they, they're problem solvers, right? Yep. So they just keep digging. Whereas I find with that, when she brings me her problems, I'm far more relational. So she'll say, oh, I had this problem with the, you know, the emergency department. And when I was, I'll mm. say, well, why, did you ask them this? Did you communicate this way? Or what was your style of interaction? You know, what information <laughs> did you get? So yeah. that's where I can help. When she tells me a story about a diagnosis and what she did, I'm like, oh, sounds great. <laughs> I'm less helpful does, there. Does the patient have a name or a number? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, did they survive? <laughs> great job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how did it feel for yeah, them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know. I didn't talk to them. Exactly. I was done. Do you have um, – I think one thing I will take away from this conversation is just speaking to a, as wide a range of people as possible is key. Also, And read, uh, read widely. Read like, widely. Don't read your stuff all the time because yeah. most of my fundamental thinking around some of this social stuff comes from, as I said, you know, but, you know, old school sort of savant thinkers or, or Nietzsche or something because yeah. the thing is a lot of this stuff is about your values and ethics and it comes from things like, like you know to understand the human condition yeah because unless you understand that yeah what's the point of doing any of this because you know we fundamentally believe that there is a human condition right? yeah and we're trying to we, we talk about all these human rights and values and what people deserve yeah and you go well because the thing is, economics isn't meant to be fair, right? Economics, it doesn't say, oh, everyone's equal yeah. and everyone has access. It doesn't say that at all. Yeah. <laughs> so um, if we've if we've decided that's important as a society, then then how we do we We need to bring in that? philosophy. Yeah, but, and, but why do we yeah. even think that? Yeah, yeah. But this is, I mean, so are you getting, are you on the audio books, train and podcasts, or are you just reading books, or how are you getting I tend to read. I'm not, I'm not big on audio books. I don't know why because mm-hmm. everyone I know loves podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. I don't I don't mind listening to it. So but I also you also have to have like hobbies completely outside. Yeah. So like I love I collect and love like watches. Yeah. I can see you're wearing two. I know it's weird. Don't, yeah, I, you weren't meant to mention that, right? But I have. I, I do have two. I, I kind watches. of. I, I it's can weird. See, I can it's see weird. what's happening. Like you're dressed very smartly, but you also want your accurate step and heart rate count. You, yeah, I, I've got the as heart a fellow rate obsessive, one. I understand. Yeah. And then I've yeah. got a properly mechanical one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's important because I actually admire. You know, you say, "Well, what do you admire? You admire things like tradition. Yeah. And, you know, things like watchmaking art. Oh, that's an art. A rare, like yeah. you know, to get you know four hundred pieces in one watch. That's and a to beautiful design watch. Something. Thank you. Is it Daytona? Uh, no, this is a Zenithil Primero. Oh, beautiful. Um, so the first integrated chronograph. Beautiful. Um, it's um, the the important thing is to say, well, why would we, you know, because human beings preserve things. Yeah. So why do we preserve an art like this? Because this mm. is an anachronism. It is completely unnecessary. Like, it's much more accurate. Yeah. It's much more thing. But the thing is, what I like about this is I can actually, it can sit there 
two, you know, human beings have made something that can sit there for 25 years and yeah. you can pick it up and wind it. Yeah. It'll start working. And it has 400 moving parts that somehow seamlessly yeah. work perfectly together. And it's like the Constellation Project, basically, yeah, exactly. on your wrist. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I'm going to steal that. This is, I'm going to. You could use that in a talk, maybe. I'll maybe get a tax deduction um, for that one. Um, no, it's, um, I, I think so as well. So, but the thing is, what is it, what is it that, you know, why do people collect, like, you've got this art on the mm. wall. Why do people react to this? You know, I have an emotional connection to this piece. Um, but understanding why, like, mm. you know, sometimes you have to go, well, what, what, you know, um, and this is something we do in board leadership stuff as well is if you're having a reaction to something, you have to pause and ask yourself why. Yeah. Like, cause sometimes that's what does it mean to you? More important. It's like, if I, if it doesn't feel right mm. and I don't say something, then what, what is that about? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is the power and privilege stuff. The thing is like, we could sit here at, at JB Weir or we could sit on our boards and not say anything because, you know, there's a very important person on the board who's very experienced, who's got all the letters after their name. Yeah. But then you're just feeding it. If you don't say what you actually fundamentally believe and call out something that you think is wrong, you know, this is the problem with, you know, all the racism and sexism is it's, it's because the bloke next to you didn't call it out. Well, I think someone didn't go, hang on a sec, buddy. You can't say that. Yeah. And cor- courage in leadership, I think, is, yeah. um, you know, we've had adaptive leadership. We've had, you know, every different word in front of leadership that can happen. Probably courageous leadership might be a good next one. Well, I think, I think that people assume that, you know, courage should be part of it because mm. in the old days, you know, mostly with military leadership is like courage was key. Yep, yep, you had to yep. be courageous. It's a return, you know, it's a return of the courage. Yeah, well, I mean, we probably don't need any more Napoleons because, <laughs> you know, I guess with Boris and Donald, we're, we're, maybe we're getting um, too much courage. People, people too with much a courage. lot of courage. No, it's got about the, the right amount of courage. Well, stupid people have a lot of courage. <laughs> so it's, it's not exactly always a good thing. Not exactly. Um, but it's, it's important that I think it is, is because, but the courage of conviction I think is important yeah. and understanding your values. Well, holding power to account as well so i think um holding uh, your values close to you in that when you challenge injustice is very very important yeah and 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 understanding that you know you're not going to be popular a lot but you know the thing is sometimes i'm not very popular with some of our boards and some of our high net worth clients but you have to call it out because if we don't Mm. no one will and millions might be wasted yeah so you know but- Shamal, I want to just finish by asking you because I know you're going to get to your next uh, appointment. Um, who are some people who are, you know you're finding interesting at the moment that are challenging your thinking, or who you're following that um, you enjoy listening to on the podcast? Um, on the uh, in terms of really, what's challenging my thinking is actually coming. I, I still read a lot of uh, behavioral economics. Um, so economics still challenges me because uh, economics for me is always about people. It's yeah. not about the echo. It, it, so it's understanding why. You know, um, the most recent conversation I had with Professor Cash Rangan, which we always have interesting conversations because his depth of experience is, but he teaches, you know, he's, he's, even though he's set up the social enterprise initiative, he teaches marketing. Yep. So that, uh, the fundamental question last time we had is, well, what is the role of marketing? Because marketing used to be about informing people of, you know, why Volvos are safe or something. Yeah. But now all marketing is about your, you know, Everything's got my in front of it. Everything yeah. is so individualistic. Oh, I'm just. Un- I love this conversation. I'm just under- trying to understand at what point did we just jettison community yeah. and become about ourselves? Yeah. Because fundamentally, tying back to our work, what I'm trying to understand is why a lot of these problems that we're seeing in society has been because the the layer that comes 
outside the, the beneficiaries at the center of the system, but the first layer outside them is family and community. And that layer has disintegrated, which has actually fundamentally caused most of the social problems because your family used to look after you mm. a lot more. Your community used to band around you. That's the role the church used to play for a lot of people. Yep. And it's just disappeared. And now governments and corporate, we're all trying to fill this space that naturally does not belong to anyone except the 20 people who you're meant to know, which mm. goes back to all that tribal stuff mm. as well. You got looked after by the people who had in some investment or interest in your well-being. Yep. Um, and you know what? A government department can't do that. For no, me. they can't. They don't love you as much. No offense, government no, department. No, no, they, and they don't. And they don't know you. Mm. Um, and they don't, you know, if someone's got skin in the game, right? Like, you know, who is the person, the professor you named there? Uh, Professor Cash Rangan, so he runs the Social Enterprise Initiative at Harvard. Yep. So the the thinking that gets challenged actually comes from really odd places. But um, uh, Christy and I, Professor Christy Muir and I at CSI, mm. we we speak a lot on these things. So we we try to challenge each other and hold each other accountable to some of the thinking. Yep. Because we we co teach. Um, I'll um, I'm being challenged by trying to see the breadth. I think, especially in the political sphere that exists at the moment, um, you know, because not everything Boris will do will be bad. Not everything Donald Trump will do will be bad. Mm. Is to separate the person from, you know, the activity and then the outputs. Yeah. Like to say, well, what happened? But they make that hard because it's personality politics, right? Oh, well, it's hard because, you know, it's you know it's 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 hard because you'd like to think they they have a strategy yep which it's clearly is evidently missing on occasion and sometimes you know it is fruit from a poisonous tree even though that all happened it wasn't worth what we got yep. for that so yep. that that's a, that's a decision you've got to weigh up but i think the um you know i, I think what's missing actually is uh, and I'm trying to read, you know, there, there's only Alan de Botton does write some amazing mm. things around really understanding, you know, things, things like architecture and all those things. Mm. So they're the type of things I need to read. But I, what I find is we're actually lacking, um, you know, really deep thinking, you know, uh, you know, we've got the whole TEDx things, but, you know, some of these explorations don't take five minutes. Yeah. They take 10 years. Um, yeah. And it's, and, and they've got to be really, you know, the, the two things I think that, that have really suffered, uh, you know, the, the actual, you know, the arts and philosophy have suffered more recently as yeah. economics and finance and those things are big. So the value of those thinkers mm. has truly been diminished and they're quite lacking. And then the, the quality of the articulation of that, you know, because people are reading tweets. Yeah. They're it's not the reading. Model. Yeah. They're not reading something that is challenging. You know, people don't want to read stuff that's actually challenging. Yeah. That takes a long time to read and understand. Mm -hmm. But that's where the value will come because mm. you have to invest in that. It's mm. not bite size, which is why I prefer reading to podcasts is because I hate people thinking for me mm. and telling me what to think. I'd rather read something and go, I wonder what I think about that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure. And yeah, it's fine yeah, yeah. to not know. Yeah. And go, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, look, it's been fantastic having you in today, Shamar. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, How pleasure. can people um, connect with you and learn more about your work if they want to? Ah, uh, well, um, if you go to the, well, actually, don't go to the JB Weir website. It's not fantastic. <laughs> it's like the 1990s. Um, but um, it just, uh, 
um, I'm on LinkedIn, um, and you know, my my I'm, I'm pretty available, um, and uh, you know, it's sort of my email shamal das at jbweir.com. But um, if you go on LinkedIn and type me up, you'll you'll find me. Uh, just wandering around doing governance stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for dropping in. Thank you very much, Jake. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.